0: Ezekiel chapter 36. I was sitting over here this morning, and perhaps, Jake, I don't know if you can see it. Maybe you guys can see it. Can you see the dust? If you could see right now what I saw, the massive amounts of dust that are just, it's just all flying around in this barn this morning. It is absolutely astounding. And I sat there and... I began to praise God for nose hair. I'm not kidding. As one who has dealt with allergies much of the last few years, it hit me, it struck me, that God in His amazing planning knew there was going to be dust. What if He had created us without nose hair? We would be a mess. We would have to have boxes of Kleenex on every chair. It would be standard equipment in the church, especially a church in a barn. We would be miserable. But God said, no, there's dust. We need something to cut that down as they breathe, so... Nose hair. Think about that next time you're plucking. That's not a bad thing that's sitting there in your nose. Okay? God plans ahead. God plans ahead. He thinks of everything. Ezekiel 36. What does this have to do with Ezekiel 36? Verse 16. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, when the house of Israel was living in their own land, they defiled it by their ways and their deeds. Their way before me was like the uncleanness of a woman in her impurity. Therefore I poured out my wrath on them for the blood which they had shed on the land, because they had defiled it with their idols. Also I scattered them among the nations, and they were dispersed throughout the lands. According to their ways and their deeds, I judged them. When they came to the nations where they went, they profaned my holy name because it was said of them, these are the people of the Lord, yet they have come out of His land. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations where they went. Therefore, therefore, let's pray. Father, we open up the Scriptures this morning and pause at the therefore. We pray, Father, that what comes after this will open our minds and illuminate something that perhaps we haven't fully comprehended before. Holy Spirit, we seek you to be our teacher. We always ask you to teach and to lead us that we might not be confused by the words of man, but that we might hear the word of God. In Jesus' name, amen. You ever wonder why God's relationship with Israel is such a big deal? I've had comments over the years, Rick, you talk about Israel too much. My first reaction is, (laughs) Hebrew Scriptures. (laughs) You can't really help it when you're studying through the Hebrew Scriptures. You're going to talk about Israel. But it's more than that. Yes, I have a passion for Israel and I have a desire to understand the things related to Israel and I want to know God's heart for Israel. But a lot of people don't give Israel a second thought. There are churches that see the Old Testament simply as Sunday school workbook stuff. Some, some charming lessons to help us understand things perhaps a bit better. Of course, those who say charming have not read the book of Judges. <laughs> An occasional source of sermon illustrations. That's the Old Testament. But the Old Testament has been fulfilled, and we're in the New Testament, and therefore the Old Testament is really obsolete. Israel, Obsolete. Some even go so far as to set themselves against the modern nation of Israel, calling it an apartheid state. Calling it a rogue nation, without which the world would be a whole lot better. I would love to see It's a Wonderful Life played out with Israel being George Bailey. Israel, just Let's just see what the world would be like without Israel. A world without the Jewish people. Let's see. You know what the world would be like? There would be no Bible. There would be no interaction between God and man. There would be no Messiah if we removed Israel from the picture. There would be no future plan. There would be no coming kingdom. There would be none of the stuff that makes following Jesus so marvelous it would all be gutted if there were no Israel. And some people miss the whole point. The Creator of this world has a heart for Israel and there's a reason why. And it's bigger than we might think. The Lord says to Israel, Isaiah 54 verse 5, Your husband is your maker, whose name is the Lord of hosts. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel, who is called the God of all the earth. For the Lord has called you like a wife forsaken and grieved in spirit, even like a wife of one's youth when she is rejected, says your God. For a brief moment I forsook you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In an outburst of anger I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting loving kindness I will have compassion on you, says the Lord your Redeemer. The Lord your Redeemer. Redemption is the connection between Israel's past, present, and future. And here's where God's planning is so remarkable to me far more remarkable than nose hairs. This is where it gets intensely personal because you see the Lord is faithful. He is the definition of integrity. He is wholly consistent. What He does with a people, listen, what He does with a people, He does with a person. What He sets in motion is sure and certain. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 11, Paul said, These things happened to them, happened to Israel, happened to the Jewish people, as an example, and they were written for our instruction, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Now, even reading that verse, some water it down and say, Oh yeah, Israel's the example, we should just not do what they did. Well, that's like saying, My older brother is the example. I look at my older brother and I say, There were things that he did that I learned not to do as the younger brother. Following him up, I saw that if he came in uh, five minutes after curfew, busted so I learned that you waited a half an hour until your parents went to sleep and then you went back out. See, I understood how all of this worked. I'm not suggesting that for our teenagers, by the way. The example is not what Israel did or did not do. The example with Israel that we need to see is what God did. It's what God is doing. And what the Lord reveals here in Ezekiel 36 is the pattern of redemption, the process, the entire process of redemption. And if we can't see it and understand his redemptive plan for Israel, I'm not sure we can fully comprehend his redemptive plan at all. He went to great lengths to lay it out clearly before us, he spells it out. Feinberg, in his commentary, says. This is the most comprehensive enunciation of the plan of redemption to be found in the book of Ezekiel, setting forth all the factors that comprise God's plan of salvation. And as we read through this, we're going to take it verse by verse all the way to the end of the chapter here, you're going to see that. The plan of redemption is crystal clear and laid out, as refers to Israel, but by extension refers to all people who would be redeemed. What impresses me is how this chapter sounds like Paul as much as it sounds like Ezekiel. You can almost take Ezekiel 36 and just drop it down in the middle of Romans 9-11. through Put it right in there and it fits. Because he talks about the plan of redemption. God is absolutely consistent with His message of good news. Although He shouldn't be. He shouldn't be. That's why I stopped at the therefore in verse 22. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, at this point, if I was the one talking to my children and I got to the therefore, it would be followed with some serious repercussions for what they did. We stop at the therefore to ask the question, what is God setting up in these opening verses? before we even get to the plan of redemption. Listen again, verse 16. The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, when the house of Israel was living in their own land, they defiled it by their ways and their deeds. Their way before me was like the uncleanness of a woman in her impurity. Therefore I poured out my wrath on them for the blood which they had shed on the land because they had defiled it with all their idols. Like a woman in her impurity, well... According to Hebrew law, unclean. But according to biology, blood. And God says that is the picture of what Israel did in the land. Unclean blood. That's what happened. The Lord proved Himself. Before they ever came into the land, He proved Himself to be their powerful Savior. Right? The the ten plagues. The deliverance out of Egypt. The Red Sea. Their powerful Savior. He showed Himself to be their providing shepherd. Forty years in the wilderness bringing manna to eat. Water from the rock. Clothes and shoes that did not wear out. Read that, Deuteronomy 8, verses 3 and 4. For 40 years your clothes didn't wear out. Huh? We just had to buy David pants yesterday for school because his little legs have grown like three feet this summer. Your clothes didn't wear out. There were miracles constant happening in the wilderness wandering of Israel. Not only did He save them out of Egypt, but He provided for them as their shepherd in the wilderness. And then He led them into a fruitful and good land, and they trashed it with their idolatry. Therefore, now I'll just tell you, following the therefore is the plan of redemption. Therefore, why does he begin with the sin and the bloodshed and the impurity of Israel before touching the plan of redemption? And I'll give it to you in some some notes if you note-takers want to jot these down. Number one, he begins with the need. The need for redemption. If you in your life do not recognize that your life needs saving, you won't even know to ask for it. You won't go looking for it. You don't seek a Savior when you think you've got it all together. It literally will take the decimation of the nation of Israel twice for the people even to begin to realize they needed a Messiah. And they're still looking as a nation, as a people group. Still waiting for their full redemption, yet future. The need for redemption. Ezekiel 23.37 says, The Lord said they have committed adultery and blood is on their hands. Thus they have committed adultery with their idols. And even caused their sons, whom they bore to me, to pass through the fire to them as food. you get it? They come into the promised land of milk and honey and they turn it into a polluted land of blood and fire. They took God's glorious gift to them and they it with their idolatry. Generations of Israel's children would never be born because so many of Israel's firstborn were offered as blood sacrifices on the fiery laps of their idols. See, that's the thing about the sacrifice of an infant. It not only cost the life of that infant, it cost the entire generation that might have come from that person snuffed out, just like that. Saw a political cartoon, I vacillated on whether I'd share this, but I think it's appropriate. Lucy and Linus of the Peanuts Gang are having a conversation, it's not a Charles M. Schultz cartoon, it just uses the two of them in this interesting conversation, and Lucy declares, I'm pro-choice, and Linus says, can I choose to smoke, and Lucy says, no, it's not good for you. Linus says, can I choose a large soda? And Lucy says, no, it's not good for you. Can I choose to own a gun? No, it's not safe for kids. Oh, can I choose an incandescent bulb? No, it's not good for the planet. Can I choose low-cost coal? No, it's not good for the planet. Can I choose to honor God? No, that's offensive. And so Linus says, so what can I choose? And Lucy says, An abortion. Nothing cartoonish about that. This year marks 40 years since Roe v. Wade. And the numbers are somewhere between 55 to 56 million out of a population of 300 million in America. Nothing cartoonish about that. I know I've brought that up many times before. It's really hard not to bring it up when you think about the child sacrifice in Israel. And you look at that nation and say, how could they have blood on their hands? Well, this nation does. And it's for all the same reasons. They sacrificed their children for success, for power, for money, so they could get on with their lives. Similar reasons today. Verse 19, I also scattered them among the nations, and they were dispersed throughout the lands according to their ways and their deeds. I judged them. Ways and deeds are an awful way to be judged, by the way. (laughs) You don't want to be judged based on your behavior. Trust me. I don't care how good you are, you do not want to be judged based on your ways and your deeds. What about those who have had abortions? Some without even really thinking it through or realizing what they were doing at the time. Stay with me on this. Verse 20 When they came to the nations where they went, they profaned My holy name. Because it was said of them, and note this, these are the people of the Lord, yet they have come out of His land. In other words, some people of Yahweh, they are. They couldn't even keep their land. You see, in the mentality of the ancient Middle East, the power of a God was always tied to the permanence of a people. And if a people couldn't stand against armies and if a people couldn't stand firm and strong in their land, their God was weak. So the very fact that the people of Israel were cast out of the land, dispersed from the land and scattered to the nations, said to those surrounding nations, their God is a weak God. So why did God do it? Why did He scatter them if it would just represent Him as weak? And the answer is he had to. I mean, he truly had no other choice. He had to do it because there's something that is bound, something greater than a people, something that is bound to the very name of God, and that is righteousness. He had to scatter them. And by the way, that's part of recognizing my need. Until I begin to understand his absolute righteousness, I won't understand my absolute need for redemption. Let me put it to you this way, and I think you'll understand what I'm saying. Sometimes when we sin one against another, it's really not that big a deal. I mean it is, but we let it go. We'll we'll slough it off. We'll say, okay, you know, we're all capable of failure, right? (laughs) I blow it too. I know you blew it. I blow it too. Okay, we'll we'll just kind of let this go. And so we cut each other a little slack. God can't do that. God can't let it go. The cross is not God just letting it go. You realize that? It's not God saying, "Ah, okay, come here kids. I know you're messing up. No big deal. No, it is a big deal. It's a huge deal. It cost Jesus every drop of His blood. You see, if we are faithless, 2 Timothy 2.13... He remains faithful, for He cannot deny Himself. Redemption is not God saying no biggie to our sin. Redemption is bought by the blood of Jesus. It is bought out of the blood of perfection to save us from the vast unspanable distance between ourselves and God. We cannot get there. Even if God were to just say, no big deal, I'll just let that sin go, we still can't get there. The distance is too great. Here is our need for redemption. We're faithless. He's faithful. We're a mess. He is perfect order. We're sinners. He alone can rescue, He alone can save. Which is why Paul wrote in Romans 3.23 All have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. And that's the need. We need redemption. Not a person born on planet earth who has not needed redemption. And if we would have any hope, we need Jesus. Therefore, 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 He should just be done with us. Therefore, He should just dump us. But here comes the great buyout of redemption. Skip down to verse 24. For I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. And the process of redemption starts to roll. See, once we recognize the need for our redemption, redemption begins with, secondly, the nearness of God. The nearness of God. He proclaims Israel's need, you're messed up, you have profaned my name, therefore, I'm gonna gather you. The nearness of God. I'm gonna bring you back into my land. I'm gonna draw you near. Psalm 73.27, For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. James says in James 4.8, Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. And listen to Jesus' heart's desire for the city that was about to kill Him. Matthew 23.37 Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I have wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate for I say to you, from now on you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus the week before his death says, oh, I want to gather you in. I just want to draw you in in a big group hug. These are the people who are plotting his death, and Jesus says, I want to hold you. I want you near to me. They have a great need for redemption, and Jesus says, I want them near. And redemption begins as we draw near, or better yet, as we are drawn near to the Lord. And the great thing about the redemption, redemptive plan of God is it works. It works. Even in Jesus' statement, you can hear how it works. He says, from now on you will not see Me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The day is coming when they will say it. The day is coming when an Israel redeemed will see Him coming and will cry out, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So, the Lord gathers this lost people to Himself. And redemption continues, verse 25. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Number three, a natural cleansing. A natural cleansing. Cleanliness apparently really is next to godliness. And cleansing has always been a major aspect of redemption. It has always been of great import to the Lord. What the Lord is alluding to here, when He says, I am going to cleanse you, I'm going to sprinkle clean water on you, you're going to be clean, He's alluding to the Mosaic rite of purification. And you go back and study this, in Leviticus, and Numbers Numbers 19, verses 17-19, through talks specifically about the rite of purification and the sprinkling of, of purified, of clean water. But it's more than a sprinkling. In fact, and you need to understand this, Jewish purification rites included both a sprinkling of clean water and an immersion of bathing in clean water. A complete immersion. The Jewish mikveh bath that, that we have talked about before. That was an immersion. Zechariah prophesies the future of Israel's cleansing, saying in Zechariah 13, verse 1, In that day a fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for impurity. That's the point of baptism. That's, That's the whole idea. It symbolizes a washing off of my impurity, not just by a few drops sprinkled on me, but by a complete immersion. And that's why we immerse. Here at the bridge, I don't understand. I honestly don't. It's just me talking. I do not understand churches that don't immerse. I don't get it. Why wouldn't you? Well, because back in the uh, you know uh, sometime hundreds, they were low on water. There was a water shortage. Yeah, that's it. There was a water shortage, so they just didn't have enough. So they had to come up with some. And so we just need to kind of give them a buy. Do we have a water shortage in the Northwest? <laughs> I'm not meaning to be contentious. But understand the point of baptism is to symbolize a complete bathing, a complete immersion, a passing from one life into the next. Even the act of it is like a burial. And so we immerse. But understand that it is not the water that does the trick. Have you seen the pond? <laughs> Last week went out to do a baptism and I, I put on the waders that I take so much flack for. And a spider crawled out (laughs) right here, and then and I didn't even see it. Dave Goodman standing beside me goes, "Hold still!" And a spider's here. I'm like, "What? What is it? Brown recluse?" (laughs) It ran up my neck and onto the side of my face. (laughs) And I still was like, "What? What is it?" You know, mouth open and everything. (laughs) So (laughs) David brushes it off, you know, and I'm like, and I saw it scurry away on the ground and just went, Oh, ho, oh, oh. I was out of those waders so fast. I did, I think it was the first uh, pond baptism in my clothes. It was a, it was a good baptism. And, the, and I did another baptism this last week um, and just came down in my shorts. I'm not using the waders now, I can tell you. I totally got off there. What, what's the point though? Then if, if the pond water is not purified, clean water, then what's the point of the mikvah? The full body immersion. Go to the temple. I've shared with you before, there are mikvah baths in the ruins there. You can see where the ancient baths were the people walked down into them, dunked themselves and walked back out. Can you imagine being at the end of the line? I'd be okay being the first one in or maybe the second if the first one was my wife. But other than that, forget it. I saw the journey this guy had. I'm not following... You know, it's the symbol. It's what the water portrays. Baptism is in response to grace. Ephesians 2.8 For by grace you have been saved through faith, that of, not of yourselves is the gift of God, not as a result of work, so that no one may boast. Grace comes first. Baptism is our response to that. It is our outward showing of what God has done miraculously, inwardly. Let me tell you a couple other things about baptism as long as we're on this cleansing aspect of redemption. Baptism is for believers. Faith comes first faith must come first. In every example of baptismal conversion in the scriptures, every time someone is saved and is baptized, they believe first. They own the baptism because the baptism is an act of obedience. That's why we don't baptize infants at the bridge because an infant is not obedient. An infant doesn't have a clue. An infant has not chosen the Lord. Well, Pastor Rick, I was baptized as an infant and I'm still a faithful follower of Jesus right now. Are you saying my baptism is invalid? I'm saying your baptism was your parents' choice. How about you making your choice? Because that is biblical baptism. Mark 16.16, Jesus said, He who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved. He who has disbelieved shall be condemned. I always found that interesting. He doesn't say he who has disbelieved and is not baptized... Because it's a moot point. If you don't believe, you're not going to be baptized. It's not like, well, he was baptized, but he didn't believe. (laughs) You know? Believe and then be baptized. Baptism is by immersion, as I said. It means going under. Read Romans 6. There's not a more graphic portrayal in the Scriptures than you find in Romans chapter 6 where Paul says, we are buried with Him into baptism. And I have not been to a burial yet where they sprinkled a few clods of dirt on someone's head and left them there. (laughs) The Greek word for baptism is baptizo. It is very specific. It means to submerge. It is not the Greek word rantizo. That's the word that means to sprinkle. It's never used. Rantizo is never used when talking about baptism. Well, that's just your tradition, Rick. I know there are various traditions in the church at large. The question is, do we follow the traditions of men or do we follow the Word of God? And so I just put it out to you, and if you have been one who perhaps you were sprinkled as an infant or perhaps that's your tradition, weigh it against Scripture. Don't weigh it against Pastor Rick's opinion. Weigh it against Scripture. Because the Scripture, I believe, is absolutely clear. By the way, baptism also, this natural cleansing, promises the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Acts 2.38, Peter said, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He comes and makes His home. He comes to dwell. And the Hebrew writer puts it all together for us, saying in Hebrews 10.22, Let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Hearts sprinkled, representing spiritual purification. Bodies washed, symbolizing a complete and total cleansing. You might wonder why if it is a spiritual thing, why do I call it a natural cleansing? Why a natural cleansing? And the reason is because the outward baptism of the natural man symbolizes something supernatural going on inside It is a natural thing. We go into the natural water of the natural pond in our natural bodies and we are naturally baptized to symbolize in the natural what God is doing in the supernatural. Number four in the redemptive plan, the new heart. The new heart. Verse 26. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. (laughs) See the process? I mean, it's step by step. He's laying this out. Every child born, by the way, since Adam and Eve, has been born with a life-threatening condition, cardiosclerosis. Hard heart. We've all dealt with it. Jeremiah called it. Jeremiah 17.9, The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. The rabbis have a name for it a specific name to describe this very thing the hardened heart they call it yetzer hara yetzer hara or literally the evil inclination that every person has the evil inclination it is what we are born with the evil inclination of the heart the tendency to to dark things The tendency toward sin and and toward rebellion is that little buzz that we kind of get inside when we know something's wrong to do, but we kind of want to do it. It's that attraction to that movie, or or that book, or that musical type, or or that person, or that lifestyle. Yetzer hara, the evil inclination. The evil inclination. The hard, stony heart. And the Lord proposes this. He says, come, I want to gather you. Come near to me. And He says, let's do a natural cleansing because that's going to signify for you what I am doing inside. What is that, Lord? New heart. I want to give you a new heart. I want a heart transplant. Let's take out the heart of stone. Let's take out the evil inclination. Let's replace it with a new heart. What are you saying? He's saying we can be born again. That's what he's talking about. To be born again. I I love the conversation. I'll just read it to you. You're familiar with it, many of you. That Nicodemus has with Jesus. There was a rabbi of the Pharisees, John chapter 3, named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night, Nick at night, and said to him, (laughs) said, Rabbi, I can only use that joke a few more times because we're getting far enough away from the old Nick at night that people are not going to know what it is. (laughs) Rabbi, we know you come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs unless God is with him. And Jesus answered and said to him, cutting right to the chase, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, that is the flesh and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of Spirit is Spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. Why shouldn't Nicodemus have been amazed? I'll tell you why because this was not new teaching when Jesus says you must be born again he wasn't teaching something that Nicodemus didn't know or at least he wasn't teaching something Nicodemus uh, should, shouldn't have known he should have known this because Ezekiel talks about it the Lord through the prophet 600 years earlier the Spirit of Christ said the same thing through Ezekiel that Jesus himself in person says to Nicodemus you got to be born again I want to give you a new heart The old heart isn't working. The old heart is yetzer hara. It has an evil inclination. It's hard. It's opposed. And you want to know why the new heart is so absolutely critical? Why we must be born again? Because the Lord wants to go a step further. He wants to fill Israel. He wants to fill you with His Spirit. And here comes the nature of the Spirit. Look at verse 27. I will put My Spirit, My Spirit, within you. Jesus says you don't put new wine in old wineskins. You'll burst the old wineskins. You don't put the Spirit of the Lord into a heart of stone. It'll just crack it wide open. The old heart, the hard heart, cannot house the Spirit of God. you got to be born again. you got to have the new heart. God says, I want to pour My Spirit into you and so when Peter and the apostles were filled with the Holy Spirit there at Pentecost those flames of fire as of flames of fire appearing above their heads they began to speak and everybody there from all different regions all different dialects all different tongues begin to hear the same message as these guys are speaking and Peter says in Acts 2.16 this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel right Jim? It shall be in the last days, God says, I will pour forth of My Spirit on all mankind. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions. And your Jim Crouches shall dream dreams. (laughs) Even on my bond slaves. Both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of My Spirit. And they shall prophesy. But you can't get the Spirit of God into a heart of stone. you got to be born again. Not born of the flesh, born of the Spirit. A new heart able to receive the nature of the Holy Spirit. And note this, what the nature of the Holy Spirit does. When we are filled with the Spirit of God, and I absolutely believe this, redemption happens, and it is more than a one-time cleaning. It is more than a simple heart replacement. You see, when we replace a a human heart with another human heart when there is an actual heart transplant which still blows me away that they can even do that guess what that heart is going to wither and die and the person's going to die eventually you say hey great I got a new heart pumping inside me fantastic it's going to give out in a few years you'll be dead anyway have a nice day (laughs) you know it's like when I got LASIK surgery and the doctors told me now this ought to last you for four or five years but you're going to need glasses again thanks for that doc you know We wear out. There's more than a one-time cleansing. God gives us the new heart, which is, by the way, an eternal heart. He fills us with the Holy Spirit. And finally, with the filling of the Holy Spirit, listen, with the filling of the Holy Spirit comes the ability to keep the righteous requirements of God. Look at the verse. I'll put my Spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. Filled with my spirit, you can do this. Without my spirit, you can't keep the law. Filled with my spirit, you will keep the law. Now he's talking to Israel and this promise will be fulfilled in the kingdom. But gang, I'm convinced of this. His spirit causes the desire for righteousness. That the hunger to walk in obedience, not in sin, his spirit in me overpowers the yetzer harrah, the evil inclination. Filled with his Holy Spirit, I want to serve him. Filled with his Holy Spirit, I am empowered to do right things, not to sin. Wait, Rick, so you're saying if I have the Holy Spirit, I can live righteously? Then why don't I? Why don't we? We quench the Spirit. First Thessalonians 5.19 Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophetic utterances. Examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. This begins to help me reconcile passages like Romans chapter six verse one, where Paul says, Should we consider should we continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. We've died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? And I would read that for years and go, Yeah, I get that I've died to sin. I get that I shouldn't be living in it, and yet I still do it. Why? Listen, gang, you have, if you have received the Holy Spirit, you have the power not to sin unless you quench the Spirit within you. Unless you close your eyes to the Holy Spirit. Unless you cut God off to follow the evil inclination. But God says, my act of redemption is much bigger than a one-time event. I draw you. I wash you. I put a new heart in you. I fill you with my Spirit. And guess what? From here on out, you should be able to walk without sinning. Don't get me wrong. I am not saying Christians are perfect. Because we do continue to sin. What I'm saying is we don't have to. The power is there if we will allow the Spirit to work through us and in us. If we will walk in the Spirit, as as Paul said Galatians 5.16, walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. That's it. It's that simple. He says in Galatians 5.25, if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Baby steps. <laughs> What about Bob? You know the movie, What About Bob? Have you seen that? (laughs) Baby stepping with the Spirit. Baby stepping with the Spirit. Walk by the Spirit. That means every step you take, you take in the Spirit of God. You've been washed. You've got a new heart. You've been filled with the Spirit. And the plan of redemption just keeps rolling on. Look at verse 28. You will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers, so you will be My people and I will be your God. Huh, what land is that? Israel? Sure? You sure that's not a metaphor for something else? I shared this midweek. God is so explicit with this promise. It's absolutely ridiculous to think that it's some kind of mystical, nebulous, allegorical, metaphorical thing. You're going to live in the land that I gave to your forefathers. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob lived in that land. It's going to be your land. You're going to live there. Number six, the next kingdom. The next kingdom. But check this out. The Lord tells them this in Babylon. They are in Babylon. In fact, the Lord tells them this through the prophet Ezekiel moments perhaps days at most after they've just discovered that their land has been wiped out. That's when God brings this fantastic promise. You've just received news of the total annihilation of your nation and God says I'm going to bring you back and you will be my people and I will be your God. And by the way, he is not talking about their return to Babylon after the 70-year captivity. Because they were driven out again in AD 70. They didn't come back to remain. Isaiah 11, verse 11 says, it will happen on that day that the Lord will again recover the second time with His hand the remnant of His people, listen to this, who will remain. When I bring you back to this land, the Lord says, you're going to stay there you will not leave again. Therefore, when God says, I'm going to bring you to the land, you'll live in the land I gave your forefathers, you'll be my people and I will be your God, He's talking about the issue of permanence yet again. And that gathering is underway. You know this, you've been watching. We've been watching since 1948. When Israel became a nation, prophecy students the world over were like, wow! We're right back in line with Scripture now. It's happening. When Israel retook Jerusalem in 1967, ho ho! They have authority over Jerusalem again. It's happening before our eyes. We have watched it taking place in this generation the regathering of Israel. God is bursting at the seams to bring his redemption to this people. And their full redemption, I believe, is very near. Verse 29, Moreover, I will save you from all your uncleanness. I will call for the grain and multiply it. I will not bring a famine on you. I will multiply the fruit of the tree and the produce of the field, and you will not receive again the disgrace of famine among the nations. And Israel is getting a taste of this. On our last visit to Israel, we got a taste of it. We walked in Jerusalem into a place called the Shuk, an open-air market where all the Israelis do their shopping. And the grains and the fruits and the produce, just prolific. It's amazing what's going on in this country. It is the only country in the world that is rolling back the deserts to create farmlands. This is taking place in Israel, and they're getting a taste of, again, grain, fruit, produce in the land. But, like my fellow Americans, Israelis still think that it's their ingenuity that's bringing it about. You know that phrase, American ingenuity? You've, you've heard that spoken before. Now, please, don't think me unpatriotic when I say, it's not American ingenuity that made this country great. It was the blessing of the Lord. You know, We were just dumb enough to think that maybe we had something to do with it. And it's going on in Israel. And you talk to the tour guides and you talk to the Israelis and they're pretty proud of their accomplishments. Look at what we're doing, they'll say. Look at our initiative. The skill of the Jewish people bringing about all these things and they have yet to hit their knees and recognize their need. And they will. Verse 31 going on. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good and you will loathe yourselves in your own sight for your iniquities and your abominations. I'm not doing this for your sake, declares the Lord God. Let it be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. Now you got to get this. There is a point in the process of redemption where loathing comes. Have you been there? Where you kind of go... I'm redeemed, but man, I do not deserve this. I'm saved, but I do not know why. The Hebrew word for loathe there is kut. It means to be grieved to the point of breaking. The Hebrew word for ashamed is bos. It means deep emotional distress. The Hebrew word confounded is kalam, and it means to blush in self-reproach. And that's what happens when when Israel finally sees their need for redemption in light of God's goodness and loving kindness, they will melt into repentance. And that's how it works. See, David said, restore unto me the joy of my salvation. But that was after the sorrow of his salvation. That was after David realized God was going to forgive him. And yet, he felt awful about it. And it's a sorrow that comes of the recognition of my sin. It's a godly sorrow. That's good sorrow. Remember, Paul says worldly sorrow, not so good. That just leads to death. But godly sorrow leads to repentance and life. The need for redemption bends the knees of repentance. Zechariah 12.10, speaking of Israel, God says, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and of supplication, so that they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. Because to see Jesus in the light of His glory brings me to my knees." It's the reason why half of our shepherds cannot hold it together when they get up here at communion. And that's very... It's, it's touching to me. Because it's a reminder, man, when we talk about what Jesus did on the cross, that should bring a lump to our throats and tears to our eyes in recognition of the great grace that He has given us. Listen, that we do not deserve. Redemption is not something we have ever deserved. It is the great buyout. That's redemption. You know what buyout is? When a company comes in and buys out another company, this company isn't holding it together, and so the other company comes in, and you know what the company says? They say, hey, we see something of value here. We think we can buy this, and we can either make it better, therefore make a greater profit, or we can buy this and sell it for more. We see value here. God brings redemption to us. And gang, you know what? He sees value where there is none. Where truly left to ourselves, there is no value. But he says, Ah, but, but I want to give you a new heart. And I want to give you my spirit. I want to bring you into the land. I want you close to me. This whole act of redemption. Look at verse 33. On that day He says, I will cleanse you from all your iniquities. I will cause the cities to be inhabited and the waste places to be rebuilt. Do you like your life's a waste? Like you've just been wasting your time? Or the things you've tried to do or just really when it all comes down it's just a waste? God says the waste places will be rebuilt. Rebuilt. He says the desolate land will be cultivated. Instead of being a desolation in the sight of everyone who passes by, they will say this desolate land has become like the Garden of Eden and the waste, desolate, and ruined cities are fortified and inhabited. And then the nations that are left round about you will know that I am the Lord... Have, that I the Lord have rebuilt and ru- the ruined places and planted that which was desolate. I the Lord have spoken and will do it. Did you catch that? He planted that which was desolate. Not that which was pure and ready and good to go. That which was desolate. He took hold of those things that were waste. God's the company that comes in for the buyout and He goes, wow, this, country, this company's a complete waste. Let's buy it. And make it into something beautiful. Instead of ruination... Rejuvenation, Instead of desolation, cultivation. And again, I ask you, do you think that your life is a waste? Do you see your life as a, a ruin? Are you among those who are devastated? Because listen, the, the same God who turns the wasteland into the kingdom wants to turn you back to the Garden of Eden back to paradise. That's redemption. In verse 37, thus says the Lord God, this also I will let the house of Israel ask me to do for them. I will increase their men like a flock. Like the flock for sacrifices. Like the flock at Jerusalem during her appointed feasts so that the waste cities will be filled with the flocks of men and then they will know that I am the Lord. What does He mean like the flock at the time of sacrifice? He's not saying I'm going to make men like sacrificial lambs so that I can put them on the altar and kill them. <laughs> He's saying, I'm going to make it like those feast days in Israel. Remember we talked about the feast days last week? They would come in for the sacrifice, and there would be lambs everywhere. Animals all over the place. Uncountable numbers of sheep and, and, and of oxen and of pigeons, and of different rams, for the sacrifice, everywhere. And God says, remember those feast days? Remember all the animals? How you looked as far as the eye could see, you see sheep everywhere? I'm going to multiply Israel like that. And my friends, the repopulation of the Jewish people on earth in the Millennial Kingdom will be nothing less than breathtaking. People say, how can a third of Israel, as Zechariah prophesied, how can a third of Israel... Repopulate the earth. Well, it will happen as God sees to it. Do you realize how many generations can be born if a person can live 500 years? 600 years? seven, eight, nine hundred 900 years? Population expands dramatically. And that's what he's describing here like flocks brought in on a feast day in Israel. And that's very nearly the end game of redemption, but not quite. There's one more thing I got to point out to you today. And it's, I think, the most important aspect of redemption, more than anything that we have talked about. When it's all said and done, redemption is not about us. Did you note it? Did you catch it? Verse 32 God says, I'm not doing this for your sake. <laughs> what? What are you talking about, Lord? What do you mean you're not doing it for our sake? You've just talked about showing me my need, and then you said you want to draw me near, and you want to give me a new heart, and you want to pour your Spirit into me. You've talked about the next kingdom. You've given me all of this beautiful stuff, and now you're telling me, oh, I'm not doing this for your sake. Turn back to Verse 22. Therefore, therefore, after describing their need for redemption, therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for my holy name which you have profaned among the nations where you went. I will vindicate the holiness of My great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. And then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when I prove Myself holy among you in their sight. And if you've been keeping notes, the seventh point is the name of the Lord. That ultimately, redemption... Is not about you and it is not about me. Redemption is about the name of the Lord. It is about His holiness. It's always been about His name. It has never been about your name or mine. And I think that's so critical to understand because when I make it about myself, when it's my redemption, my salvation, guess what happens? It puts me in the middle. It centers it all on me and I miss the very point of my existence which is to glorify His great name. That's what redemption is for. A people redeemed now glorifying the name of God in their redemption. A nation redeemed, able to glorify God throughout the coming kingdom. Psalm 115 verse 1, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to Your name give glory because of Your loving kindness, because of Your truth. Acts 4.12 tells us there is salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. And Paul says in Romans 10.13, quoting the prophet Joel, whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's the plan of redemption. So, Lord, 2,600 years ago, you verse by verse clearly laid out your plan of redemption for your people Israel 2,000 years ago Father you came and you fulfilled that plan of redemption and not just for your people Israel but for all who will call upon the name of the Lord to Jew and Gentile alike and so this morning Father we praise your name we bless the name of the Lord We glorify Your name. In Jesus' name, Amen.